Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, On last week's show, I mentioned that I would be gone out of the U.S. of A. for a week, and I was. I uh, would normally come back and be eager to talk about what transpired overseas uh, or across the border, as the case may be, but this time I'm not. Um, (laughs) Some interesting things took place in the last week, and I'm just not quite ready to talk about them. Hopefully that will tantalize you into wanting to hear more about what happened. I'm just going to collect my thoughts and uh, tell you about some of the things that I saw and did couple points, though, I do want to mention is that, you know, it's it's hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. That's true about your own life, our own lives, and it's true about where you live. I think it takes seeing some other place and experiencing some other place to be able to really see where it is you live now. I mean, when you've seen another country, you see the U.S. with new eyes. You see you know, in California with new eyes, and my eyes have been uh, given a refresher course, and that should enable me to make some observations of some interest, but it just ain't going to happen today. So bear with me, please. I'm just, I'm still a little bit travel fatigued, and I think it'd be better if I collected my thoughts. Joining us in our second segment for today's program will be Gil Metavoy, whose program on KDVS Crossing Continents comes to you every Saturday. Gil's extremely knowledgeable about the Middle East, and he'll be talking to us about that subject. But we like to do follow-ups on this program, and uh, there is a follow-up story that I would like to open with today. Greenpeace has been cleared in a U.S. shipboarding case. We mentioned this several months ago on the program about the fact that the Bush White House was dusting off a law not used in the U.S. since 1890 to bring criminal prosecution against Greenpeace. Apparently what happened was that uh, in April of 2002, two Greenpeace activists climbed aboard a freighter off of Miami to hang a sign reading, George Bush, Stop Illegal Logging. Now, um, apparently, the illegal logging of mahogany in uh, the Amazon is a lucrative trade that has uh, a fatter profit margin than cocaine. So apparently there was a freighter with uh, illegally felled mahogany uh, offshore here down in, in Miami, And uh, the Greenpeace guys went aboard, put up a sign protesting it, and the Ashcroft uh, Justice Department apparently decided to (laughs) review an 1872 law against sailor-mongering to use that against Greenpeace. Well, now, for those of you not familiar with sailor-mongering, in the 19th century, brothels would send 
prostitutes onto ships before they'd reached harbor to lure sailors ashore with booze and promises of warm beds. Now, apparently, U.S. prosecutors argued that Greenpeace conspired to break the law by recruiting, quote, quote, climbers, unquote, for the seaborne protest and by using a Greenpeace corporate credit card to rent a boat. Chris, I love, I love it when lawyers get involved in this, you know, like which side can win. Apparently, Greenpeace's lawyers challenged the prosecution on the wording in the law, saying the ship was too far offshore when it was boarded to be considered, quote, about to arrive, unquote, at its destination. Apparently, that sort of tomfoolery didn't, uh, nitpicking argument didn't need to be drawn out. Uh, U.S. District Judge Alberto Jordan granted the Greenpeace motion to dismiss the charges after the prosecution rested on the third day of trial, ruling that federal prosecutors had failed to prove their case. So thank God, sanity prevailed. They, the U.S. attorneys apparently made their case. Greenpeace just motioned the judge, would you just please drop this? And the judge, thankfully for all of us, saw the light of day. And uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Bush administration. While I was gone, I had a chance to read quite a bit, which is something that I, you know, is always a good part of a vacation. I spend a lot of time on an airplane, a lot of time to kill, so uh, read The Economist, read New Scientist, read Discover, read Scientific American, uh, read Newsweek, read Harper's, read The Atlantic, read The New Yorker, read whatever, but uh, get a lot of reading in. And I need to basically... uh, (laughs) review some of the more salient points about what's being said about George Bush. <sighs> Fairly, I think. But uh, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about John Kerry. Warren Buffett, the legendary investor, has now agreed to serve as economic advisor to John Kerry. I think it's clear that some heavyweights want to get involved. Uh, they've mentioned, of course, a George Soros, a billionaire who can't stand George Bush and wants to help the Democrats. Uh, well, you know, heavyweights are coming on board, and I do think that uh, Kerry's chances look pretty good. And I'll tell you that right now. It's May, but I think his chances look pretty good come November. It's going to be close. But uh, four years ago this month, we predicted that in November of 2000, Al Gore was going to run very well against George Bush and that he was probably going to win. We were right. That was on our old radio show, uh, Reality Radio, over on Cable Access in Sacramento. But we predicted a couple weeks before the 2000 election that Al Gore was going to get about 283 electoral votes. He actually got 291 if you award him the disputed Florida electors that that I think it can be fairly said, Jeb Bush stole from the Democratic column. We have not yet run the numbers due to uh, a census um, in the year 2000. There's going to be an automatic swing of about 10 votes to the Republican camp. Something like that. 8 to 10, I believe it is. So Kerry is going to have to carry one or two more states than Al Gore did. I don't think that's that much of a daunting task. We shall see. Uh, I do want to point out a rather disturbing headline, a very disturbing headline uh, coming out of the Associated Press. As of yesterday, John Kerry said he's open to nominating anti-abortion judges as long as that doesn't lead to the Supreme Court overturning the landmark 1973 ruling that made abortion legal. That, of course, is Roe versus Wade. Uh, You know, I think someone needs to sit down and, you know, do a little finger count, take out, you know, take out... 
Yeah, two hands will suffice. You know, delete one finger, have nine remaining digits, and start doing your count. Right now, willing to overturn Roe versus Wade tomorrow are Tony Scalia, William Rehnquist, Clarence Thomas, and McGeorge University right here in Sacramento's very own Anthony Kennedy. The fifth member of the felonious five that appointed George Bush president in the year 2000, Sandra Day O'Connor, has always refused to join the other four in knocking off Roe v. Wade. So uh, they're one vote away from doing it, Senator Kerry. So so I realize you want to play to the South and say you might consider nominating an anti-abortion judge, but if you do, Roe v. Wade's going to go down in flames very soon thereafter. I gotta be honest, I don't like John Kerry, but uh, it's gonna be an easy decision come November when you realize he's running against what is undoubtedly the worst administration in the United States since that of Warren G. Harding, that, uh, you know, you just don't have any choice. You gotta vote this guy in and then take your chances with him. In that regard, I would refer you to Scientific American, May 2004, page 10. Scientific American Perspectives. Bush League Lysenkoism is the title. Now, when I was a student here at UC Davis, I first learned about Trofim Lysenko, a man who single-handedly destroyed the science of genetics in the Soviet Union. Lysenko was a fraud, but some of what he had to say about what he thought of as how to select crop plants, which basically involved what's called Lamarckian evolution, uh, in short, a method that doesn't work, he somehow gained the favor of Stalin, who thought that the, his ideology of science was very much in line with a good, proper communist, uh, communist thought process. The trouble was, it didn't work. Well, Scientific American has finally had to, to sign on board with uh, people like the Union of Concerned Scientists. To quote from this article we've quoted for previously on this program, Quote, although scientific input to the government is rarely the only factor in public policy decisions, this input should always be weighed from an objective and impartial perspective to avoid perilous consequences. The administration of George W. Bush has, however, disregarded this principle. Do yourself a favor and read what Scientific American's editors have to say and go to page 50 and read about science's political bulldog, an article on Henry Waxman of the House of Representatives, who has um, talked about some of this stuff. For, did you know this? The Office of Foreign Assets Control, part of the U.S. Treasury, has pressured professional organizations such as the American Society for Microbiology and the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers to virtually ban scientific papers that originate in Iran, Cuba, Sudan, and Libya. The rationale? The ban is part of a U.S. trade embargo policy with these countries. Publishing their papers requires special licenses. This sort of meddling in the free exchange of scientific ideas should be sending a chill up the spine of every person listening to my voice. You know, on our old program, we told the story about Trofim Lysenko, and I don't think it's as well-known as it ought to be, so sometime in the next couple of weeks, we're going to tell you what happened to Soviet genetics in the 1930s, how just an incredible disaster took place because ideology took precedence over good scientific investigations. 
The Soviet Union, I believe, is still trying to recover from a lost generation of agricultural and biological science. I refer you also to an article that appeared in USA Today on Tuesday of this week by Jonathan Turley, directed against Bush's stem cell politics. Uh, Turley's father has Parkinson's disease in an advanced stage, something that might be helped by the use of stem cell research. Uh, Of course, you no doubt heard that former First Lady Nancy Reagan has opposed George Bush in this matter, called for him to drop his opposition to fully fund research into this. Of course, former President Ronald Reagan has advanced Alzheimer's disease and could theoretically benefit from stem cell research. You know, if Bush gets reelected, uh, we're going to see uh, we're going to see what Robert B. Reich, the former Clinton Secretary of Labor, uh, points out in an essay that's currently found on the internet in various locations. That, quote, right-wing evangelicals will solidify their control over the departments of justice, education, and health and human services, curtailing abortions, putting federal funds into the hands of private religious groups, and pushing prayer in public schools to say nothing of promoting creationism. And uh, let's talk a bit about the scandal involving the jails over in Iraq. Seymour Hirsch has once again used his impeccable connections with the Central Intelligence Agency and uh, other people in high places to tell what is going on. Newsweek magazine in the current May 24th edition also has an excellent, excellent summary inside of what is going on. If you go on the web or if you watch television, you get a very confused picture about these prisoners and the abuse and, of course, the fact that Seven people are being court-martialed right now. Low-level people in the Army, I believe reservists in some case, in some cases, people being prosecuted for what is a very high-level decision that was made to treat people in Iraq the same way people are being treated in Guantanamo to increase the intelligence yield. This is involved keeping them, in, not actually torturing them or killing them, supposedly, but involving extremes of heat and cold. We've seen the pictures showing uh, sexual humiliation, all sorts of things that are uh, based on this idea on how to, uh, to, to break down the so-called Arab mind. What you wouldn't know if you're watching television or just reading this story on the internet um, uh, is that high-level decisions were made by Donald Rumsfeld and the Pentagon to... Uh, to basically go in and set up what are off-the-book secret programs to get the job done. Take the gloves off. We've all heard that one. We're going to take the gloves off in dealing with terror. Well, uh, we're learning from these pictures and, and, and from probing into what happened in the jail in Baghdad. Uh, we're learning what taking the gloves off means. And what it means is that uh, experts in interrogation from the military and Central Intelligence Agency were brought in And a very conscious decision was made to not treat people according to the Geneva Convention. People like uh, General Colin Powell uh, voiced profound objections to doing this, pointing out that the U.S. and other nations have been very well served for 50 years by the Geneva Conventions. And that if we don't treat people according to those rules, how can we expect our soldiers, when they're taken prisoner, to be treated by the same set of rules? The story which Newsweek uncovered is that a bunch of uh, what's described as 
forward-leaning conservative lawyers in the Bush administration decided that this was all a new kind of war, this conflict against a vast outlaw international international enemy, and that, uh, you know, international treaties and the Geneva Convention would not apply. These positions were laid out in secret legal opinions drafted by lawyers in the Justice Department and ultimately by White House counsel Alberto Gonzalez. Now, lost in the shuffle out of all this is that basically they made a conscious decision to apply what was being done with supposedly very high-level Al-Qaeda and Taliban-captured uh, people from, from, uh, from Afghanistan, what was being done to them in Guantanamo, and applying these same principles to, uh, you know, cab drivers, brothers-in-law, people pulled off the streets, uh, put in prison in Baghdad. We're talking about a very high-level decision that was made, a decision to ignore the Geneva Convention and to go out there and get the information, damn it. This is not a matter of a bunch of hick army privates from West Virginia going out and deciding to play with people by putting electrodes on their hands and genitals. Because uh, I didn't know this, but apparently that famous picture of the man with the hood on and being wired up, that's that's a, a standard interrogation procedure that even has a name. It's called the Vietnam and that this is something done by interrogation professionals. They train these kids into what they're supposed to do, and then they set them loose to do it. The blame goes very high, but yet we've now convicted somebody, given him a cart martial, and he's going to testify against the others in claiming that, gee, no, we did this and kept this from the higher-ups. Well, it just ain't so. It's a big lie, and to find out more, please do yourself a favor, get the New Yorker, read Hirsch's article, and grab the Newsweek off of uh, off the news racks. All right, one final item. I'm, uh, I'm sad to note the passing of uh, Tony Randall. I, I, never, I can't say that I ever really watched The Odd Couple on television, and uh, probably the main reason for that is I think Jack Klugman is probably the worst actor in history. But Tony Randall wasn't. Tony Randall had talent. I loved, I loved his appearances on Letterman. He was a, it was a favorite of Johnny Carson. Apparently, he made more appearances on Johnny Carson than any other guest. At least that's what his publicist had to say. Uh, you know, he was, he was always, he was, he was a very funny man when he would sit there in the chair and go at it with David Letterman. The thing I always admired about him is he had an ability to laugh at himself and make fun of himself, even down to the fact that he got married and had a kid at age 77. Um, you know, it was something like a, a sort of a, a, a Cary Grant kind of quality of, of sophistication to him, and yet he was able to poke fun at himself. It was a wonderful combination, and, uh, you know, I'm sorry that he's gone. I, I got many a laugh out of him, and I suspect you did too. Stay tuned in the second segment for uh, one of KDVS's own. Gil Metavoy will join us to talk about the situation that's going on over in the Middle East. Uh, Gil is, um, is from Israel. He has an Israeli passport. He's extremely knowledgeable, and we recommend highly his program, which comes to you every Saturday on KDVS Crossing Continents. Gil will talk to us in the next segment. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. You're listening, by the way to Radio Parallax, and I'm your host, Douglas Everett.